Welcome to the Lights On Show. I'm your host, Jacob Morissette, and this is a podcast about self-development. In this week's episode, I talk with Megan Olson, an advanced placement history teacher, and her and I talk about what inspires teachers to do the things they do and some helpful tips to become a better teacher and a better learner along the way. If you enjoy this episode and bring some value to your life, follow me on Twitter at lights underscore show, and please leave a rating on whatever listening service you are on. Hope you guys enjoy. And a side note, around 8 minutes and 34 seconds, there will be a bell sound, but I didn't delete it because it kind of disrupted the flow, so I hope that's okay with you guys. So I'm going to be obviously introducing you more formally in the intro, but I'd like for you to explain your story and uh, introduce yourself to the audience. Sure, yeah. Uh, My name is Megan Olson. I'm a history teacher at Graham Kapowson High School. I teach AP World History, AP U.S. History, and this year, Regular World History. Um, And I've been at GK now for, I'm in my sixth year, um, and I love being a teacher, and I'm really excited to be here and talk about education as a whole with you. So I'm very excited to be here. All right, so um, can you like sum up kind of how your career started? Um, what what did you do in school, and how did mm-hmm. that maybe inspire you to become the, yeah. the teacher you are now? Yeah, I started off um, in regular uh, public school at a pretty young age, me and my brother, and then my mom actually took us out because she wanted to try homeschooling for a while and see how that was, um, and it was great for me. I loved it. Um, started about junior high. My brother, not so much, um, but I stuck with it, and we did um, you know a co-op, and so we had different classes there, and then I transitioned into the running start program. Uh, So I was doing college while I was in high school and I loved all of it. I loved being in school. I loved learning new things. I loved having the rigor and the structure and the focus and the reading. Um, So I knew right away that I was going to go transfer to a four-year university and I knew from a really early age that I wanted to study history because that was always my favorite subject and my biggest passion in life. So when I started to approach my senior year of high school, people would say, well, what are you going to, you know, what are you going to do with a history degree? Like, you know, are you going to be a teacher? And I always said, no, I did mm-hmm. not want to be a teacher. I said, what a miserable job that people make very little money. They deal with angry high school students all the time um, and no one appreciates their work. So I was very adamant that that was not what I was going to do because that was my vision of high school when I was a student. What I saw in classrooms was a lot of negatives towards the profession. So I transferred to uh, Seattle Pacific University, where I spent two years. My graduate, or excuse me, my undergraduate degree is with a major in history, focusing on 20th century geopolitical affairs of the United States. Mm -hmm. My minor was in political science, and I graduated with honors, loved all of it, worked really hard, and then had no idea what I was going to do with my life after that. So I just, yeah, nothing. (laughs) I had the degree that I loved. I studied what I loved, had no idea what I do. I worked at Barnes and Noble for about a year year selling books. I worked at the same veterinary clinic that I worked at in high school because they were willing to take me back on and I'd enjoyed it. Um, And I kind of did some odd jobs um, and ended up working at an OBGYN office, so women's health um, at a a Seattle-based hospital. Mm -hmm. And I ended up being there for a total of five years. And what I found that I loved about that job was the discipline and the work, that medicine was an entirely new field to me. I had no experience with it. And I loved learning all the ins and outs of women's health care and delivery process and medication and just kind of that whole system, insurance, everything. I loved it. And after about a year and a half, I learned all of the things that I needed to for my job. I was a patient care coordinator. I contacted, you know, surgery and I scheduled things. Um, And as soon as I stopped learning new things in the job, I became bored. And I realized that without that, that lure of constantly learning new things, I wasn't going to be happy. 
And so I kind of did some soul searching and a really good friend of mine sat me down and was like, well, why didn't you go into education? Like, what was your main, like, why, why didn't you pursue that? It seems like you'd be so good at it. And it dawned on me that really it had just been kind of my perception of institution of, of education as a whole, that I was afraid of entering into something that I had no real experience with. Um, and it was the stigma of it. And so I agreed to job shadow a fellow friend who was a high school history teacher up north. Um, and I job shadowed him for about a week and I absolutely fell in love with it. I loved the atmosphere of the classroom. It was completely a separate experience when you were the educator and I fell right in love with it. I applied that fall for SPU's Master of Arts in Teaching program and I did a two-year program again through SPU to earn my master's degree in education. Started teaching uh, that following year and have it looked back since. Yeah, you know, I will um, 100% stand for the uh, the good teacher part. Your friend will hit it straight <laughs> on the nail. I have seen that for, for I mean, oh, obviously I'm you. not in your class right now, but um, part of the reason why I wanted to do this interview in the first place is because that first initial year when I had you, uh, I've explained this before, but I was kind of an idiot my first two years. My <laughs> sophomore year, I was not pulling it through, and you were one of the ones that inspired me to mm. push myself and to grow the self-confidence in order to go into those AP classes my junior year, and then you continue to push me in those classes. And seeing the progression from um, just like September to, even though I still failed the AP test, my the my work ethic and my mm-hmm. my love for learning, just like yours, right? I'm actually even relating a lot to you when you talk about um, the love for learning because yeah. that was me. And these two years are kind of like you, right? I'm like, I need to go to yes. college. I need to. I need to be fulfilled <laughs> in life. I will not have enough if I don't go to school. Um, and that's why you know you were definitely one of those people mm-hmm. that was able to push me through that door. So for sure, I have also your friend to thank as well. Um, that's really awesome. And I guess your mom, too, because your mom helped to mm-hmm. um, when you went into homeschooling and mm-hmm. you got that different. Um, um, what's that word? I always say that, but you got the different perce- not perception perspective. Um, you have a different perspective, right? You were able to then go super hardcore and running star and then do all those things. So that is or I didn't even know you're homeschooled. Oh, yeah. I feel like spent I keep, a few years being homeschooled. Yeah. I learn new things about teachers yeah. all the time, <laughs> I guess. So I, lots of backstory there. <laughs> it's, um, and then. um so kind of getting into the main parts of of these questions, I think you kind of answered this, but um, like my, my question that I had written out was what inspires you to be mm-hmm. a teacher? But I, I think you already kind of answered that, just the the love, the, you know, the, the rigor and the constant learning, the constant um, adaptability and never being bored. And, and you talked about the atmosphere. So I think one thing you haven't explained is talk about the atmosphere. Yeah. What does it mean to be a teacher? What is that atmosphere like that you were talking about? Yeah, because there's a difference, right, in your love of learning. You could love to learn just for yourself. You could go out and not be a teacher and still be a student of any subject and pursue it through reading or through attending seminars and just have it as a hobby and a passion. Yeah. Um, so to take a love of learning and apply it to to a classroom is, is kind of a different experience for it. Um, and that was what I saw when I did those job shadows um, after I had graduated, was that the application, trying to convey your personal love of learning to a room filled with students was powerful. Um, because I absolutely believe that education is an equalizer, that education is the foundation of an American democracy. And that going all the way back to the earliest days of the country, democracy is a grand social experiment, and that we need an educated citizenry who knows 
knows what's going on in their country and who makes wise decisions and elects wise leaders. And what I saw was that I could translate my love of learning and my love of history in its explanations for uh, showing us and telling us how did we get to this point? Why do we behave the way that we do? I could transfer that to students and generate that love of citizenry and that love of democracy and that passion for taking charge. And that's why I settled, I think, into teaching um, political science and history and world history is that focus for it is that um, because we live in experimental society, I feel that we can improve American democracy by educating citizens. And that's why I fully ended up being uh, an educator was it combines my own personal love of learning that I never have to stop learning. There's always new things for me to try and me to learn. And I can pass that on to kids who will become the next generation and continue to guide the country and hopefully wise path. And it's also to note, but um, just so you guys know, she's an AP teacher. Most of her courses that she teaches are advanced placements. So when she teaches these students, it's like she's teaching many versions of herself when she was younger. More, more than, uh, more than likely, these students, such as myself, when we are taking these AP classes, we want the rigor. We want mm-hmm. those in, those um, teachers that love to teach and. That's a really good point because that's what the founders set up when they, uh, like George Washington, I think he set up like one, like it had to be like a certain block of land out of a number of blocks of land had to be dedicated towards school grounds. Mm-hmm. And so you're completely right with that. That was a, um, a key point in creating this new democracy that the world has never seen is keeping, but a huge part of creating that new democracy that the world has never seen was about educating our youth. And it was so dedicated. And even though back then they were learning how to read and write for the Bible purposes, mm-hmm. we've advanced in such a uh, an advanced way. And um, history is all about learning from mistakes. I mean, if you put it simply, it's like learning from mistakes, right? When we mm-hmm. learn from our own mistakes, we just look at our own history. So it perfectly translates over into what you teach, which is um, specifically world history and U.S. history. And you also do AP in those as well. And I think being from a student that has learned from you, you, we do learn a lot of mistakes, right? Like the main reason why I know what I just said that is part of the founding, um, is part of the foundation of this country is that we are taught that in Mm -hmm. our history classes. So it's just a it it is really an important part especially to have a passionate teacher it's it's really influential for students and for people that just want to go into that so um also i have another question mm-hmm. why did you pick specifically high school versus um a college position like and and maybe when you were um i don't know how the whole application yeah. process works for teachers but was there a way for you to pick between high school middle school and elementary yeah um so then you knew you wanted to teach at high school then yes so then my question then is why pick high school over college students and like why yeah, so um, the short answer is that I didn't want to publish. If you teach at a community college or a four-year university, in addition to your regular educational role, you're largely expected to be publishing. That is that you're doing your own research and you're putting out articles and you're writing books, um, something that the university or school can hang their hat on and be like, look at our awesome teachers. They're doing all of this extra oh, okay. stuff. Um, and it's not that I don't enjoy learning and researching and writing for my own edification, for my own education, but that um, I did. that's not where I wanted to to devote my time. Mm -hmm. I wanted to devote my time to the group of students that may or may not attend a four-year university. And I felt like that high school was where I could reach those kids, where if I go into education with the goal of improving democracy by educating citizens, I needed to have a broader reach of citizens. 
And while the university system is uh, excellent in the United States, it still doesn't reach all students um, since some don't end up there. So I wanted to target uh, an age range where I could have these adult conversations and go into the depth and the complexities of history, the intricacies of it, but still educate a group that was about to venture into their adult world. And so that meant high school. That actually is a really good point because, yeah, because you have every single student here. Mm -hmm. Like, um, so let's say something happens, whether or not they just choose not to go or something big in their life happens to go, you allowed yourself to automatically, for sure, guarantee that you will be teaching citizens, future citizens that will, you know, obviously, yeah, I really like that. That actually does make a lot of sense. And I think it, it makes me respect your decision and other high school teachers' decisions. Because I was always thinking, especially with um, Mr. Darby, who hopefully I'll be having on the podcast soon, but when you guys listen to him, um, I just, I was curious because he teaches so well and he has taught, he has taught in college before and he came down to teach high school. So I was always curious about that. So that's, I think that's a really good clarifying question in order to better understand mm-hmm. where teachers are coming from, especially when they are rigorous. So it's like the education system isn't like, well, elementary school teachers are the worst and the middle school teaches a little bit better and then high school teaches a little better. Like it's not a, yeah, no. a not a rating scale. No, it's a, a different skill set. Yeah, it's just right? different you know, stuff. In, in elementary school, you can be dealing with kids that don't know how to read and write their name and it's a lot more social emotional yeah. support. It's not that high schoolers don't need that support. It's just that the expectations for learning are different. And so when you go to school to become a teacher, you study different strategies and you have different skills. And generally, you know, the best teachers at any age level are teachers who have a heart for that age range because kids go through different levels of maturity and so they need different types of support from their teachers yeah and I've always looked at life as like chapters so um we all have different chapters in our our lives like so we have an elementary school chapter or like just a schooling chapter so yeah I guess it just depends on what chapter of a student's life the teacher Mm -hmm. likes the most or whatever they're able to with their skill sets um convey the message that they need to have the most exactly um and then what keeps you coming back? So obviously, I would say that your love for learning and this continual um, growth and this continue like you see new students every single year, you get to see them graduate, you see them come and go, um, and you get to influence them, obviously. But other than that, what kind of keeps you going? What kind of keeps you taking? Because some teachers will experience fatigue or burnout. Um, we were just talking about this before we aired, but uh, Mr. Darby works like a, a truck every Mm -hmm. single day and he's been doing this for years as he's been teaching um, yeah education is not for the faint of heart so yeah what what do you think keeps you what do you think keeps you running as a truck because I remember last year you were talking about I think it was always like a joke like oh Miss Olson what are you gonna do this weekend you're like sitting in a blanket graded papers that's what that's what I did so even though that sucks right obviously there's an offset and obviously teaching all that stuff like that but yeah um kind of Other than that, though, is there anything else that keeps you pulling pulling you back, like just constant lasso? When I was thinking, yeah, about why do it is that I stay in this profession, which does have like a 50% rate of burnout for teachers within their first five years, I chalk it up to three things. Um, And the first is hope in that I have reborn hope every day, hope that this will be the day that students will make a historical connection, that they will hear something in the news and they'll make a connection to something that we've studied in class or just connections among the past. And they're going to put two and 
two together and that light bulb goes on and they feel like they start to understand why the world the behaves. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> I, got, I, plug the, I plug the podcast all the time. That's not, it's good. That's why I use that expression. It was yeah. just for you. Yep. yep. And so that's why they feel connected to the subject because they find those connections. Um, second thing that I always look for is knowledge. Um, and the knowledge isn't content learning knowledge. Uh, it's knowledge that every single day is a new day to reach a student. So I don't come to work with a bad attitude because I don't let mistakes of students carry over from one day to the next. Mm-hmm. I start every day with the knowledge that it is a new day and it's a new student and it's a new attitude. And we're going to go back and build on those basics and that this is my chance to continue to work on relationships with kids so that they feel like they're in the safe, supportive environment. If I carry negative you know, energy or senses into work, that negatively impacts students and then their learning doesn't happen. But every day I get to come in with the knowledge that it's a fresh day and it's a fresh start. And the third thing is definitely the growth. I love to see the growth in students. Um, Like a student like you that I've had, you know, for two years in a row. Um, Students that you're able to spend that much time with and draw those connections across over years, become more passionate in their subject. Um, And even if it's not history, uh, my hope is to inspire a love of learning in some subject so that they become connected to an idea and it gives them guidance guidance and direction in their future and in their career uh, and in their personal life that they become stronger in whatever they're pursuing. Um, And seeing that growth gives me more strength every day to continue to do the job. Yeah, I like to hit on your your second point. What was that? Like uh, you're able to forgive and forget. Mm -hmm. I definitely use that that a lot. (laughs) I feel like especially in those early years or uh, when I I would fall asleep in your class because of my my student burnout. But um, yeah, that's yeah, that is definitely, I, I can see, um, I was talking in the previous interview with Miss Holzer, and she talks about how she loved to, um, when she was a, a state patrol officer for, not state patrol, but when she was a, a state officer for DECA, that leadership felt really good. It's like a, almost like a warm, fuzzy feeling, and mm-hmm. it, it helps bring value um, to what you're doing and all this stuff like that. So I, th- I see that what I'm doing right now, right? This takes a lot of my time. It takes a lot of my commitment. It's a lot of energy, but knowing that even if I only help 10 people that that will consistently listen to my show, it, it brings almost like a, a good feeling like, yeah, I'm mm-hmm. actually doing something. And yeah. especially for someone like yourself and like me who, who has this constant want to help. Um, cause teaching obviously like it's, it's almost like slave labor. It's, it, it is, <laughs> I mean, obviously yes, we get a job and you get job security, but it, it, for people that don't know teaching and I'm pretty sure Ms. Olson can agree with this, but teaching, especially when it comes to rigorous courses, it's a lot of grading, it's a, a lot, lot of, grading. of yes. grading, and it takes a lot of time to prepare lessons. It takes a lot of time to 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 get to know your students yes. and to understand their learning styles and to um, and if you if you don't have those things but you still want to get into teaching, then that learning curve. I talk about this in my book talk, but you have a dip. There's a dip of teaching where you really, really, really get excited about it, and then you hit a sinkhole and you have to go super willpower in order yeah. to get through it and that sinkhole um it it, it is very hard yes and it is if there's one thing i can tell the audience right now is that we should respect our teachers they <laughs> even if you don't like them they're still they still got some pizzazzle in them that deserves some sort of respect it, it truly is a grueling job especially when you have um students that don't want to pay attention but um you also mentioned how how um, you get to see their progression, right? Mm -hmm. That's another little hidden gem in there, right? You see these students that maybe you had to forgive and forget every day, and then you see them in a month, and they're completely changed for the better. And I think that also kind of goes with um, 
changing America to be better, right? I mean, I hate to put it, but making America great again. Not 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 quoting Trump or not quoting any of that. Uh, no party affiliation, but in a sense, that's what it is, right? Education. Yeah, I think that's, regardless will, of party lines, it's the goal of any yeah. democracy is to improve the country and the well-being of all its citizens. For sure. Um, so then, if you had to name some, um, okay, so real quick, you would agree, right, that teaching is a valuable and important skill, not only for teachers themselves, but for everyone. Because I feel like everyone is kind of put in a leadership position or they're put in some type of role, whether you're a parent, whether you're an advisor for a company, you're always put in some sort of teaching role. Yes. So being that it is so important that you uh, agree with that, what are some ways that we can become better at teaching? What are some ways that... um, that we can grow a passion for it because obviously passion helps drive success. Um, I have a passion for talking. This is a podcast, right? So my passion for talking leads into something else. So um, how can we either, well, I'd like you to add on, I would almost say split this question into two things, but how can we gain a passion for teaching? And then how can we use that passion and use it to grow our teaching ability and then help to continue to help to, help others right so if we're in a lead position how can we make our team better if we're in that situation how can it be applicable in basically real life situations yeah i think the the question about how can you gain a passion for teaching is such an interesting one because when i look at you know my own story i stumbled into teaching it wasn't something that i thought i would be incredibly passionate about Uh, i almost found it by chance i was out a few a year or so out of college uh struggling to know what to do and it was just an off chance friend who said well maybe you should do a job shadow and just reconsider um so i think sometimes we uncover our passions by accident and that we're pursuing something else and we uncover these moments um and i think sometimes for people who are specifically wanting to improve, say, teaching skills in different leadership roles, to gain a passion for it, it's sometimes helpful to think about it in smaller steps. And the idea that, you know, you're not being asked to plan an entire year's worth of lessons all in one point. But teaching is about little individual day-to-day, moment-to-moment interactions between kind of the leader or the teacher and whoever's doing the learning. So whether this is a parent and a child or um, a business manager and an employee, you're focusing on those individual actions which are going to contribute to a healthy working relationship because ultimately um, relationships are at the core of education. So to really be gaining a passion for education, you need to enjoy getting along with people and working with others. And a lot of times that comes with practice. Not everyone in the world uh, is going to be your best friend. You're not going to get along with everyone that you work with, colleagues, family, anyone else. Um, But learning to be able to work with others uh, to develop successful working relationships is key in education. And then following up on that in terms of using your passion for teaching or to be a leader, um, I look at it in two categories. And the first is attitudes. Um, In terms of attitudes, I would say the three key kind of attitudes that you need to have to be any good teacher or good leader is that you have to be patient. Uh, I think in many ways, patience is a lost art in American society. We expect everything instantaneously. And people need time. They need time to work. They need time to think. They need time to process and adjust. And a good leader or teacher is someone who knows when to be patient with others and give them the time that they need. 
Another attitude that I always look for is empathy, that you need to not just sympathize, but you need to put yourself in the shoes of someone else and understand where they're coming from. Teachers and leaders bring change. They require change. They challenge you. They push you. They require growth. And so to understand resistance from the a person that you're teaching or leading, you need to know where they're coming from. You need to know about them. You need to be able to understand them um, and kind of get a sense of what it's like on that other side. And then the last attitude that I look for is optimism in a teacher or a leader. You got to be optimistic. The job is tough. The battle is uphill. And if you don't bring that optimism every day, the people you are teaching and leading will know it and they'll feel it and they'll be negatively impacted by it. Uh, We're inspired by people who see a better tomorrow and a better future. And we latch on to that optimism like it is a life raft. So I think optimism is powerful. And then with those three attitudes, I look to turn them into the idea of actions. That actions, then we take these attitudes, we apply them in an actionable situation, and that's really where we improve our position as a teacher or a leader. And so I would say the first action that we look for in good teachers or leaders is that is someone who takes responsibility, someone who can um, know everyone in the room's abilities, their limits, their goal, who can distribute the work and take responsibility when needed, and then delegate someone who is going to take that position of authority but do so in a responsible way. And the second action that I always think of is the role of planning. Um, Nothing great is accomplished without planning, whether it's long-term goals or short-term goals. That has to be planned and built in. So if you're a CEO or a kindergarten teacher, you still need to be planning ahead. What is your vision for your group or for your business? And what are the actionable steps that you can take throughout there? It's part of that optimism is that you have a plan and you're seeing the future. Yeah, for sure. I like, I like your your change statement. I've I've read many books uh, specifically about um, lifestyle change and kind of changing the way you look, but being able to adapt, react, and then readapt, unbelievable. It's mm-hmm. seriously, it's it's so applicable in our day to day lives, and I think that's the reason why it goes with teaching because teaching is such an, such an applicable role that we have to take especially in a country uh, such as ours, such as ours that's very developed and everyone's doing something at all times or all there's mm-hmm. there's tons of leadership roles there's tons of positions where we're being put in these teaching positions and just being able to adapt react readapt whatever whatever that saying is like being able to do that and understanding that concept is such a key influence mm-hmm. to um almost what we do every day yeah. i mean there, there's there's yeah, there's times when even I teach someone every single day. There's always a little opportunity. Um, and I also like the attitudes because I've always had a problem with, well, at least I used to. My mom would always be like, why do you have to have such a negative attitude about right. me? Like, You're never going to be have fun. Blah, blah, blah. Like when I was a little kid, I did not want to go to Disneyland for the for the life of me. I didn't want to go to Disneyland. I always had such a negative. Why not? <laughs> I always had just a negative attitude about it. And it carried me. It it. it sunk me down that attitude made it to where I really did not want to go and eventually got to the point where my parents had to lie to me saying that we're going to my grandparents house in (laughs) Southern California totally bought it until we stepped out the car like Disneyland right in front of us but then everything changed and so what I find interesting about that though is that you mentioned that attitudes will translate over to the people that you're around yes and so what if I would have been an adult taking my kids to Disneyland, yeah. trying to give them an experience of the lifetime, and I still had that same negative attitude yeah. as I did when I was a kid? 
that would be a Debbie Downer and a total waste of money. If you want to go from a Marxist perspective, well, not I guess not really Marxist because that's more like societal classes. And but take it from a money perspective, that'd be a total waste of my money. Yeah. If I have a negative Nancy attitude this whole time and try to take my kids so they can have fun, but if I'm being negative, no yeah. point to it. Um, people are really intuitive. If you are in a bad mood, people know, right? I mean, that's yeah. part of where there were that question, you know, how are you, which we throw out so casually really where it comes from is that we can always, you know, kind of read someone else to understand if they're in a good mood or a bad mood. And you know, you know, when you, you know, sit down at the dinner table with family, everybody's mood. If you walk into a classroom, everybody can read their teacher. If you sit down with your boss, you know how your boss is feeling. People are intuitive. And so we pick up on those attitudes as much as we might try to hide them from others. Yeah, so, um, and then, dang, you actually kind of killed that. That was a pretty, you had, like, all the notes that how you're like, boom, this point, boom, and you actually. Oh, I'm a planner. It's part was, of my action, right? I'm a planner. I was, I was actually really killing it. I was trying to keep up, but, um, yeah, change, change is good. Change and, and understanding your attitudes, and I love the knowing your audience part, because that is so key. You see so many times where um, you have, well, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like the teacher's fault, but more like the student's attitudes towards the subject, right? Um, freshman, I think this more happens with the younger classmen than the upperclassmen, but, or even I would say some professionals, right? People pick the wrong jobs. Yeah. And so w- when you're a teacher and you have the wrong audience, um, for example, if you have a whole bunch of kids that take your AP World History class and you can sense, like you said, you can sense their attitude, you can sense the fact they're not doing their homework, they just don't care what you have to say. How do you as a teacher react to that? Because you mentioned reacting and changing. So how may, I think that situation happens to us all the time where we're put oh, yeah. in situations where we have to teach a group that doesn't want to be taught. Yeah. How do you try your best and, and still try to convey your point and still at least have the impact, still impact society um, in a meaningful way? How can we still do that? So for me, I focus on what I set as my long-term goal. So what I had planned out as the reason that I went into education, which was to educate young minds to improve citizenry and as a result then improve the role of democracy and the function of democracy in the United States. And so when I have students who you know don't do their homework and uh, continually get low test scores and then complain about their low test scores um, and are doing all these things really to the detriment of themselves, mm-hmm. I remind myself that I didn't go into education to help kids pass AP tests. Like that's not, that's not my focus. That's a nice bonus for the kids who work hard. But I went into education so that every student who was in my classroom would have an adult who was empathetic and who was positive and who would guide them in the process of learning because that's the end game. Whether or not they pass their AP test, I want them to leave my classroom being educated citizens. So maybe they're not meeting me halfway and they're not doing the work that I've asked of them to do, that doesn't mean that I still don't give my 110% to meet them with the positive attitude and to work with the work that they are willing to do in class. And so that's how I kind of maintain my head above water when I might feel like I'm drowning, you know, I'm doing too much work or I'm doing more than they're doing. Um, You can keep those negative thoughts at bay by remembering why it is that I went into education in the first place and what my goal is. And then I can still accomplish that goal whether or not they read their textbook. <laughs> and then I so I think this kind of close this kind of goes into a point that I've always told myself but would you agree that kind of sounds like faking it until you make it kind of like sometimes like, <laughs> like faking the attitude and continuing to give the students the best you have until yeah. hopefully or maybe not but eventually I mean for I would I wouldn't necessarily, necessarily say myself but I think in some situations it might have been me where a teacher doesn't necessarily intrigue me 
but then they just keep doing the 110 percent they keep yeah. digging back into the roots and then eventually my attitude changes so yeah. i would for sure say that that is a principle or at least an example of faking it until you make it yeah um, and i think in a lot of times your attitude becomes your overall temperament that if you're constantly working to be angry and depressed and everything around you frustrates you it's hard to break that cycle so partly it's about being a pattern um as cliche as it sounds you kind of have to choose to become more empathetic and choose to be optimistic and choose to be happy if you don't look for the silver lining if you don't look for the good in those situations you only ever see the bad that clouds your vision into the point where it's much more difficult to change so partly sometimes it needs to be a willful choice for certain people not everyone there can be other extenuating factors but yeah. yeah for a lot of people the attitude that you project to the rest of the world is increasingly becoming permanent and so you need to be aware of of how you choose to present yourself and what attitude you choose to take on and then um what is the professionalism level that you have as a teacher like what do you see and i know it's kind of like way off track but i know you say something about how you present yourself yeah. um i kind of want to go into yeah how like obviously we have our attitudes and we have our mindsets but um physically what does how you dress or how you um, use your body language how does that help convey a message or how does that help you teach? I think it plays uh, an incredible role. I think sometimes educators have the reputation of being frumpy. You know, there's the, the stereotype that, um, you know, coaches wear their track suits all the time and yeah. they sit at the desk in the back. There's the stereotype that exists in education. And I'll never forget when I first became an educator, I was doing my student teaching and I was in a, um, a woman's classroom up north and the teachers looked at me and said, um, you always have to be careful what you wear and how you speak and how you physically move around the classroom because educators are professionals. We work mm-hmm. hard day in, day out. And in order for us to be treated with respect, we need to act like we deserve it. That too often teachers fall into the trap of being, um, less than professional and or then like we complain casual, about yeah about not being treated as professionals mm-hmm. and so since then that's stuck with me since the very beginning and so I've always worked hard to make sure that even on the days when I want to put on a sweatshirt and just put my hair in a ponytail I remind myself nope I'm a professional and this is my career and I've yeah. chosen this and so I make the intentional effort to make sure that I wear professional style clothes like I would in an office and that I keep documentations of meetings with parents and phone calls and emails because this is my evidence, my proof that I am a professional and that I deserve to be treated with respect. That was awesome, for sure. Um, I noticed this a lot. That, and I'm not calling out certain teachers, but you, you can see or just when you visit or when you have teachers that dress professionally and when they do take those certain recordings and and they they do stuff in that professional mannerism, it's almost it's like their attitude is different than the ones that where that they do casual Fridays every day Mm -hmm. and there's nothing I wouldn't obviously you do you but you are right when that does have an impact on it it shows who you are how it impacts your teaching and and the style that you have as that educator and it it relates to the students as being in one of those classrooms it at least to me it makes it harder for learn it makes it harder to learn when the teacher isn't as um I would say like Chop, chop, chop. Yeah, because um, the tone is business. We're yeah. we're here to work and we're here to learn and get we're gonna be nice about it, but we're gonna learn. It's happening. Yeah. It's like get it done, yeah, boom. Exactly. My stepdad <laughs> always says to my mom ask him a question, he'd be like, Get it done. <laughs> and it's so funny because um because that's it's always a constant theme, especially since uh, we own a construction company and he's yeah. just like, Jake, Gavin, my stepbrother, get it done. <laughs> get it done. 
Make it happen. And yep. that statement is more true than ever, and especially in the, the educating community and, and yeah. in a teacher's role, for sure. Um, so just to kind of wrap up this interview, because it is kind of getting a little late, but I'd like to ask them final quick questions. They don't have to be quick answers. I would love if you were to elaborate, but if they are quick, um, that is plenty. But how much do you like your job or love your job, whatever vocabulary term you want to use? How much do you personally love it, and would you recommend it to – a person who has similar passions to yourself? I would say that on a scale of one to 10, I love it like 9.9. The only point to one that I don't love in education is the politics, the kind of right mandates that come down, um, which are very different than the realities of the day-to-day classroom. But outside of that, I love the job. I love the hours. I don't mind, you know, putting in 12 hour days during the winter because I'm going to take my month in the summer. I don't mind grading papers on my weekends because it's worth it to me to see the growth. I love interacting with high school kids every day and kind of watching them grow into the citizens and individuals that they're going to be moving forward. I love all those aspects of it. For sure. Um, and then this is kind of a, uh, this will be like a, a low commitment kind of thing, but what's one thing that the listeners can right now before they go to bed, read, watch, or do that has inspired you greatly that you would like to invite them to do, or maybe, maybe like a challenge. Cause I'd yeah. like to do challenges too, like a 30 day. I have two actually. So. The history teacher in me says you should take out your smartphone right now and download a news app, just something to keep you connected so that you have constant access to streams of news, what's going on internationally, what's going on in the country, what's going on locally. It's so easy to stay informed and be involved. And we need citizens who do that and who do pay attention to yeah. the news. Uh, the other part of me, though, my second challenge is more of the the teacher leader angle, not necessarily history. Um, and I would say that something simple that anyone can do to practice being a better teacher or a better leader is to right now identify just in your head one person that you know is struggling with something. If you're a teacher, maybe it's a student. If you work in a business, maybe it's a coworker or a colleague. Maybe there was a computer shift and they're struggling with a new program. Maybe it's something personal going on at home and they've expressed to you the challenge that they have. But just identifying a person in your head who you you know is struggling with something and just making a plan of what you're going to do the next time you see them to help them. And maybe it's just checking in and being like, hey, I know you're going through this thing. Let me know if you need any help. Like I can be available. We can meet during lunch and do this thing. If it's a teacher, you maybe meet at before or after school. Hey, I yeah. saw you did better on this essay. Let's go over this. But sometimes it's just about pausing and taking a minute to think of the people who need that help and then extending it to them before they ask. All right. And then this is more of the the longer commitment. What is your favorite book that has uh, nonfiction? I don't really like fiction books. Everything I read is nonfiction. And I think a lot of people get confused because obviously I, I think I think more of my brain than I do of other people's brains, obviously. So when I say, oh, yeah, I read a lot. A lot of people assume I read fiction books. I read purely nonfiction, self-development books, um, a lot of like ideal books. So in that same kind of category, what is your favorite book that has uplifted you or inspired you or taught you something really important? Yeah. Um, it was, it's tough to pick a favorite book. Well, Cause you can I always, have, you can always okay, do a couple. That's good. Cause I have two. Okay. okay go for so it. the first that came to my mind was the lemon tree by Sandy Tolan. Um, it studies the journey of, um, a Palestinian man who returns home to lands that had been kicked out by Israel in their 1967 war because he wants to visit his childhood home because he remembers the lemon tree that 
that grew in his backyard. And when this Palestinian man comes to his childhood home, it's been occupied and been living in by an Israeli family. And so then now there's a, a female college student who grew up in the home. And so the two of them who would be politically and religiously at odds, given all of the chaos in the Middle East, Absolutely. basically sit down and share a meal and have these conversations about their shared memories growing up in this home with the lemon tree. And it just blew me away because the book was eloquent and it was beautiful. And it reminded me of why I went into education and this idea that despite the chaos of the world, there are values in it and that there are things that are true and good. And that's what we want to hang on to, that at the core of all of this chaos, there's a common humanity. And that's where we find our commonalities and similarities, and they are stronger than our differences. And that's what I love about that book. I would also probably say indirectly, you may also love it because of what you talked about with what makes a good teacher, the change, the attitude, and um, what, what did you think you said, like patience. Attitude, yes. All yeah. three of those things to me, in order for two people that against all odds should hate each other, especially in that time. And even now it's really, really hostile in that environment, but they all, they practice those things and you know what they got out of it? They got good out of it. So to me, just hearing that without even reading the book, it shows me that those three things lead to good and they lead to wholesomeness and they lead to a happier life because a life that you're always mad is not a life to be living. Yeah, ever. and we need so much more of those lives. In For the sure, absolutely. Yeah. That is really. I actually might check that out. I really it's invite really you guys. Good book. And then you said yeah. you have a second one. Yes, my second one is um, the Shallows. What the internet is doing oh, to our brains. Tell me why <laughs> I read that book. <laughs> did you, did you read? I love that it's book. It's so good, right? It's so good. That I did a blew book my talk mind when I read it. That absolutely blew my mind. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved it. I could. I changed the way that I think of the internet and the way that I think of social media, oh, yes, the way that yes. I choose to spend my time, you know, in the evenings that it was amazing. Um, I loved it because that idea of the, de- the role of declining concentration, because mm-hmm. I find that even in myself, that if I spend so much time on the internet, my, my ability to read books for sustained time decreases yes, and that the, yes, the yes. goal of it, how it's intentional in the way that it chips away at my ability to have sustained effort in something that was horrifying that this idea of the internet could be seeping into my brain and changing uh its flexibility the malleability of the brain Yeah, it literally changes yes what how you like where your brain focuses its energy it's fantastic i would love for you to read this book by cal newport it's called deep work it literally is the sister book to the shallows the shallow the shallows was done in like what 2011 2011 was it earlier? I think it was that. It, whatever. Okay. It was 2011 ish. This book was written in like 2015. Okay. It is its sister book. I'm not like okay. they are twins. Okay. Because what Cal, I'll, I'll try to briefly go into it. Okay. But he talks about the shallows, right? And that idea of our brain is becoming shallow, literally. We can't have deep thoughts. We can't concentrate. We can't do all these things. Deep work takes that and tries to fix it. <gasps> Oh, okay. It's not going on my list. And not just picking apart all the wrongs, but it talks about, um, like it talks about, it's just so interesting. Does it have like counter strategies? It has, it literally has, it has, it has, um, why deep. So the first part of the book, um, talks about, um, why it's important to have deep work. So like it almost, it, 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 it argues a point that deep work is valuable. So yes. it, it tries to yes. change our opinion of the shallows and turn it into deep work. And then it gives you the rules for it. it get, he, he, he suggests a layout on how to get the deep. I love that you've read that book. I love the book. We I got it. In, we got yeah. an English class to read it for a project. And it was supposed to be like a month long thing. I read it in a week. 
Yeah. That, I couldn't put it down the I first time it. I read it. I straight yeah. Well, and it. I love what you said about deep work because I'm totally going to add that to my list because I run into that all the time in education and that kids don't want to work hard, yeah. right? They want me to feed them answers and they want to do the minimum and they it's constantly do the shallow work. right. And then even the, you know, really gifted kids who would normally work hard are afraid of getting anything less than an A. And I'm constantly trying to tell them that there is a value in the struggle, that yes. the work itself is good for you on so many levels. And that's what makes us better educated citizens is that we go through these struggles and it empowers us it makes us better it, it i've noticed that especially since i would say ap courses when it comes to history once you get them you kind of get them when you take an ap math class it's a whole nother ball game different disciplines oh yeah. yeah and that's something i've had to learn with ap chemistry is that the struggle and the grind the uh, the literal grindstones like rubbing your face in the book because you are so mad <laughs> is a real thing and when you are able to get that deep work to do it, you like grow. And I wouldn't have had that yeah. if I never would have like I toss out everything. I just boom, textbook, grind. Yeah. And getting that deep work mentality. Yeah. And teachers go through that all the time. All the time. Especially if you have like a struggling student, you gotta grind the gear stones like, how yeah. am I gonna fix this student? Yeah. Well and not only does it help, you know, you as the individual do better in the class, but I think that it improves our sense of self confidence and self worth mm -hmm. that we go through these struggles and it enables us to be more optimistic and to be more empathetic because we've gone through the struggle ourselves and so we can empathize with others when they go through it. And it tells us that even though there were dark days when our faces were pressed into that text and <laughs> we weren't getting we were, you know, waiting for osmosis or something. Yeah. Um, that even through that, you come out of it and you're better for it. And being able to look at that track record in your life makes you more optimistic and toughens you up at the same time. Our trials build us. Our they trials do. and the way we handle them and yeah. the way we come. It's not how you get in the rough. It's how you get out. <laughs> exactly. And I know it's cliche, but cliche things, I truly believe are cliche for a reason. Yes. Teachers tell you, do your homework, right? right. Cliche. They say it for a reason. We say that other saying, we say fake it till you make it. It's because these things I feel like are yeah. so applicable. Like they're real things yeah. that people go through and that work and that they've been there and done that. Yeah. Awesome. I love that. I love you read the shallows. Um, also, if you don't want to go buy deep work, I just finished it. I'd love for you to, to Okay. Read you want to trade me for the lemon tree? I'll bring in my lemon tree. You trade me for High deep five. work. High five. Love that. Okay. We're going to do that. Okay. Done. That is a that is a deal. This is okay. how we get it done. Yep. Right. Um, and then, what's your favorite joke? You don't have to. I, I, I know I kind of threw this in, but. I'm not um, amazing at jokes, but I do have one that I love because I feel like it fits my personality and my interest very well. Absolutely. It is, what kind of tea did the American colonists want? What kind of tea do they want? Liberty. That's awful. <laughs> I know, but it's my favorite. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it's so funny, too, because. That's, I mean, yeah, the mm -hmm. whole tea party thing. I love tea. Yep. I can't. That joke makes me laugh every time. As bad as it is, it makes me laugh every time I hear it. That's awful. <laughs> that is so cringeworthy. Anyways, I really, really appreciate you doing this. I have, a, I learned something new every single time. I had no clue you're homeschooled and those book suggestions and being able to hear from someone that is an experienced teacher and someone who wants to not become a scholastic teacher, but wants to become a leader, wants to become someone that that can help because I do have the same passions. I, I mm -hmm. want to be able to contribute something. Yeah. So for me specifically, this, this interview does more than just help my audience to help me build street cred, but it helps me to grow literally. And 
that is invaluable. I'm very, very happy that you did this. And thank you for having me. This was great. This is awesome. Well, I really appreciate it. One more high five, loud and proud. There you go. All right, that is it. All right, once again, that was Megan Olson, an advanced placement history teacher who knows a lot about teaching. And please follow me on Twitter at lights underscore show and leave a rating on whatever platform you're listening on.